0: Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. This week, we'll look at the costly price of Christian faith as Open Doors releases their World Watch List 2023.
1: There were 40 countries when we first began the list that were experiencing very high or extreme persecution, and today there are 76 countries...
0: We'll also look at Wycliffe's efforts to provide scripture translation and practical help to war-torn Ukraine.
2: Our humanitarian aid has opened many people's hearts to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and many have come to know him simply because we provided a package of food.
0: We'll also hear from Johnny Erickson Tada on The Christian's Great Hope, Heaven. It's a long for heaven. It's to long for Jesus we have all this and more. I'm Don Crow, coming to you from my home station of WADA in Washington, D.C. You can catch my program each weekday through our live stream at WAVA.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Take a moment to follow The Christian Outlook on Twitter at tc_outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll start with a look at the church the global body of christ and the places on this planet where christian believers are paying a particularly heavy price for their faith for 30 years now open doors founded by the late brother andrew have been publishing an annual world watch list looking at the top 50 countries where christians face the most extreme persecution north korea tops the list but the african nation of nigeria is increasingly dangerous 5,621 people lost their lives as a result of their faith last year. A full 90% of those were in Nigeria. Lisa Pierce is serving as interim CEO of the U.S. Office of Open Doors. She was a guest on my program. We've talked about it often through the years, the Open Doors World Watch List. In fact, we've talked about it quite recently. I understand, however, that 2023 is the 30th anniversary of this particular uh, list, if you will. Uh, For folks who may not know about it, what are the uh, function and purposes of it? And uh, how has uh, really the whole field of persecution changed over the last 30 years? Uh,
1: Yeah, big question. Thank you. So the purpose of the list is to do extensive research right across the underground church, right down to village level, even in... Uh, communities where it's not legal to be a Christian, where we have to trust underground networks, and to really build a clear picture right across those countries of where and how Christians are being persecuted. What does that look like? What are the implications for them? Is it getting stronger? Is in some areas it's getting easier? And what is the specific nature of persecution so that we can identify how to ask people to pray, how to come alongside them, and also how to give practical help? Um, And you're right, it's 30 years this year. And as we stand back and look at that big 30-year lens, there are some aspects of persecution that have really shifted over that time. For a start, there were 40 countries when we first began the list that were experiencing what we would categorise as very high or extreme persecution. And today, there are 76 countries. So the breadth of where persecution is being experienced is wider Um, But also, it takes more persecution points even to get onto that top Christian list today than it used to. So the breadth and the depth of persecution, the scale and severity, if you like, is one area. The other thing is that the list was actually part of the reason the list was originally put in place or established um, was when the wall in Germany came down and the Iron Curtain ceased to be so much of an issue for Christians. And we wanted as an organisation to really get a sense of what is happening to the church. So where could we prioritise supporting the church? So we went from behind the Iron Curtain to many, many more countries and and other continents around the globe. An interesting thing, talking to the creator of the World Watch list, Weibo Nikolai, who still is involved in the ministry, he said that when he was working behind the Iron Curtain, the most as a, a person visiting there, the most... Um, punishment that he could expect to get as a Christian going to visit would be about six years in prison. Still a big issue for him as a young man and um, then with a young family. But now it is your life that is often at stake in traveling wow. to some of these places. So there are a great deal of different uh, shifts, if you like, over that 30 year period.
0: How is Open Doors able to gather this information? I'm sure there's no one simple way, but how do you network out to get this information into these troubled regions?
1: Mm. So we use a means of methods. There, there are some things, for example, we look at what the laws are of the land. So what legal freedoms or protections are there, if any, for Christians to practice their faith, to have a private faith? to share their faith with others, to convert from one religion to another. That's one of the factors. We also, through networks, basically, because we've been in existence for 68 years and we began with Brother Andrew going into um, Eastern Europe with Bibles in the back of his car, we have a very relationship-based ministry. So over those 68 years, our one of our values is to be with the church. So we go into countries, we connect with local Churches, we we find the Christians there. There are many incidents of how God has brought people together. Um, the Holy Spirit has really um, helped us to connect with people, and then gaining people's trust and proving ourselves trustworthy, they will introduce us deeper into networks and deeper into networks. And so, uh, it's there are no shortcuts. With as I say, we've been operation for 68 years, and it's really through relationships through, through trust to doing what we say and providing the practical help as well. Um, But it's a slow but very valuable process to build those relationships. And then we have research PhDs, human rights specialists and others logging and analysing external data as well as the data that we get from the church. One interesting fact is that um, in this year's list, there are actually over 4,000 people who contributed to the data on today's list. So it shows the scale.
0: Wow. My frustration often has been that the American public at large and the American church in particular seems to be desensitized or at least not very well informed or involved or engaged in uh, the issues that affect our brothers and sisters. Can you suggest ways in which Christians here in the United States can get involved?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, Well, you mentioned at the beginning our website, opendoorsus.org opendoorsus.org, then we can connect you with stories of what is actually happening to brothers and sisters in the persecuted church today. Get involved in praying. God will break your heart as you you pray, but it will be um, a real challenge and inspiration to your faith as well.
0: One key way to guard against getting desensitized is to remind yourself of God's overarching purpose on this planet. We hear it, of course, in the Great Commission from Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. A key piece of that work of disciple-making is access to a Bible in one's own native tongue. That's what the good folks of Whitcliffe have been doing for more than 75 years. And they're continuing their good work in Ukraine as bombs continue to come down. Steve Martin of Whitcliffe Associates joined Georgine Rice on True Talk KPDQ in Portland
3: one of the things that Wycliffe Associates is focusing on right now is supporting Bible translators and their families, as well as other Christians in Ukraine. Now, it might surprise some of our listeners to know that there are Bible translators in Ukraine. It's sort of the Bible belt of that region. Explain what Bible translators in the Ukraine region are doing, and then we can talk a bit about the challenge they currently face.
2: Yeah, so they're involved in Language groups uh, that don't have scripture. Uh, Some of those may have a New Testament, they don't have an Old Testament. Some may have portions of the scripture, and then there's the people groups that don't have any scripture at all. And what we currently know is that number is probably somewhere in the vicinity of 45 to 50 or so in Ukraine that don't have any scripture. And our teams are most heavily involved with the Roma languages, kind of the gypsy-type languages that are there. And we have opportunities uh, right now with our regional director, who lives in Kyiv, to reach out to eight other uh, language groups. And I think he plans on doing that in November.
3: Can you talk with us about the Emergency 911 Fund and uh, how Bible translators in Ukraine are um, suffering as a consequence of the conflict that's going on there?
2: Uh, Certainly can, Georgine. When this all happened back in February, actually February 24th, uh, many of us were gathered together in another country outside of Ukraine, and our team was with us. Our Ukraine team was with us. So it's kind of interesting as things started happening and cell phones started buzzing, uh, ringing, uh, alarms started going off, and all our attention went to what had just happened in their country we immediately began praying stopped our meeting began praying just seeking god's face uh, for his intervention at that time and then of course by the end of the evening the devastation the destruction the death report all that stuff started coming in uh, to us and our ukraine team so it didn't require any additional prayer for us to know what to do. Mm. It's one of those things where you know what God wants you to do um, just in your spirit. So we immediately began arranging, how do we help our people? What turned out for us was we had families that were separated. They were maybe some of the family was in a different country. Some of the families in a different part of the country, and uh, we had one set of parents and their daughter were separated. The daughter was at the home. The parents were actually with us. And eventually, uh, they were, we were trying to get the daughter out. And every road was closed. Every bridge was bombed. It was just, she always ended up getting turned back. Eventually, uh, they were able to be reunited in another country. And we were providing funding uh, for them to be able to, to live because they had lost everything uh, in the process of the daughter uh, escaping right after she got away, uh, a bomb hit their home and destroyed it. so we've been able to go in provide those needs, uh, just basic humanitarian needs uh, for our our staff and for translation team members and we don't really limit that to only those who work with us and are doing translation, but we let them look at the landscape around them because they have some eyes that they can see where these people really need help. And what we found at Wycliffe Associates is that our humanitarian aid has opened many people's hearts to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many have come to know him simply because we provided a package of food or we met a need in their family's life or there was a medical issue here as a result of something awful that it happened so that's one of the ways or some of the ways that we have been able to assist at ukraine this particular family with the daughter where they were separated they've actually gone back into to mm-hmm. their home city of keith and are actively back at work
0: in bible translation coming up heaven the christian's great hope to long for heaven is to long for jesus johnny erickson tata when our Christian outlook continues in a moment.
4: Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu capitalism.
0: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. As we consider the church around the world today and the efforts to press forward with the church's Great Commission mandate, it can be easy to lose heart. That is, if we lose focus. You and I can live more fully on this side of eternity as we consistently regain our focus on heaven, our eternal home. It was in 1995 that Johnny Erickson Tata released her book, Heaven, Your Real Home. She felt it needed an update. Johnny was a guest of Georgine Rice, talking about heaven, your real home, from a higher perspective.
3: You write in the preface to the new edition that the longer you journey with your eyes on heaven, the more you begin to see. We often, when we when we think about heaven, we can't help but think of
5: 24 karat gold streets and tree lined crystal rivers and rainbow thrones and uh, lakes of, of uh, made of glass and it's and, and the New Jerusalem, which looks like uh, you know, probably uh, pales the city of Oz in comparison. I mean, it just doesn't look very appealing, it doesn't look very attractive. But heaven isn't so much a place of 24 of karat gold streets and, and uh, tree lined avenues that flow from a throne in the center of this magnificent city. No, heaven is more of a person. I, I just want people to understand that to long for heaven is to long for Jesus. And and if we don't have if we don't have good thoughts about heaven, if we don't get excited about going there, if we're not investing our hearts' treasures there, then I I would beg to say that perhaps we're not searching after Jesus hard enough. Hmm. If because if we don't love Jesus, if we're not in love with Jesus, we we're, we're not gonna be excited about heaven. But if we do love him, oh my goodness. Wherever he is we want to be and of course that's in heaven. So in this book, I talk a lot about my friend, the Lord Jesus, who's closer than a brother. He is my bridegroom, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's the king. He's my king. And prolonged suffering, Georgina, I think has given me that focus. As, as the days slip by, as I deal with chronic pain daily, and now this second battle with stage three cancer, my focus is much, much more on Jesus, which means my focus
3: is much more on heaven. Mm. You point out that in the early days of your paralysis, you were fascinated by heaven because uh, you would be healed there. Um, It was an escape from the reality that you uh, lived at the time and still live in even more painful ways. But you write that your perception of heaven has changed as you've gained spiritual maturity. And that should really be the trajectory of our understanding in regard for heaven, regardless of our physical circumstance, should it not? Oh, absolutely. You know, often when we think of heaven, we think of what we're going
5: to get. We think of what we're going to gain. And so many people look at me, a quadriplegic, paralyzed in this wheelchair. And they probably assume that all I ever think about when I think of heaven, it's getting back use of my body, glorified hands at work and feet that run. And I'll be able to jump up and do dance and kick into aerobics and embrace my friends and feel my feet on running on a meadow or splashing in a stream or reaching for any, they assume that I'm looking forward to heaven because I want my new body. Again, we often look at heaven as a place where we will get things or gain things or get back what we lost here on earth. But I tell you, Georgianne, the more I study the Lord Jesus and fall in love with him, the more I want in heaven to have a new heart. I want a heart that's free of sin. I want a heart that no longer tries to twist the truth. I want a heart that doesn't, um, uh, you know, fudge the truth or manipulate others with precisely timed phrases. It's not always hogging the spotlight. I want a heart that looks out for the interests of others first before my own. I want a heart that doesn't bear a grudge, that that thinks the best of other people. I I want a heart that doesn't sin. I think that's what Mm. I'm most looking forward to in heaven. Not a new body, but a new heart. Because heaven is a holy habitation for holy people and if we don't get about the business of being holy as christ is holy down here on earth then there's going to be nothing appealing about heaven to draw us so as i've fallen in love more with christ again which has given me a longing for heaven it means i want to get rid of sin in my life i want to divest myself of self-interest self-righteousness self-awareness self-consciousness self-consumption I just want to get rid of the self and be less of me and have more of him. And this book will help people do just that as they read their journey with me in this whole exciting adventure of dying to yourself daily and rising with Jesus every morning I get up and I've got to go through a bed bath and people um, you know, doing my toileting routines and giving me leg exercises and putting on my clothes and strapping on my corset and lifting me in a wheelchair and brushing my teeth and brushing my hair. And I mean, every morning I've got to die to myself and say, no, I, I, I can't, I can't allow pity, self-pity to overtake me. I've got to die to myself and my own wants and wishes. And I've got to rise to Jesus and his grace, his empowerment, his enablement. And that's the way to fall in love in heaven. Yeah. Die to yourself daily and, and, uh, and live for Jesus that
3: day. And that begins with preparation even now in in making that something that we desire here on Earth. I know for many people, when they think about heaven, they just think about the absence of hell. If I can just escape hell, then that will be heaven. We just want to get there having little understanding or regard for what that might mean. What do you say to those who uh, see heaven as just the opposite of of hell and a place of uh, at least escaping that? Well, you know, um, I love what C.S. Lewis said,
5: Georgini. He alluded something to the fact that, that life here on earth is like, it's like reading the title page. It, that's all it is. It's not the real story, but we get caught up in it as though it were the real story. But life here on earth is but the title page. We turn that title page. We leapfrog our tombstone. We enter through those gates of pearl and step into heaven. And that's when the real story begins. That's where chapter one begins. The real uh, story for which we were created. Uh, down here on earth is only preparation for that marvelous story yet to be lived up there. And God is fitting for us, uh, fitting us for heaven right now. And everything we do down here on earth, everything has a direct bearing on our capacity for joy and worship and service in heaven. Um, every drastic little obedience, every time we say no to temptation, every kind word we offer, every thoughtful deed we give to a neighbor, everything. It's accruing for us a larger capacity, a stretched, and eternal capacity for bigger worship, greater joy, and happier service in heaven. And, Georgine, I don't want to miss those opportunities. Mm-hmm. I don't want to meander through life with a ho-hum spiritual attitude, half-heartedly uh, in love with Jesus. I, I don't want to, to live a life of complaint and discontent. No, I'm not going to – I don't want to miss the opportunity of increasing my eternal capacity for serving Jesus and worshiping him and enjoying him forever. So I think for us, Earth's challenge is to see it as the minor leagues. We're in training for the major leagues in heaven, and I don't want to be less in the kingdom of heaven. Boy, It would be wonderful to one day be considered great in the kingdom of heaven because there will be degrees of joy and service and worship in heaven. Some will have lesser of a degree, and others will have greater degrees. And how we live on earth uh, depends on where our eternal estate will be. So um, get busy about investing in heavenly glories above. Like Colossians chapter 3 says, set your mind, set your heart, set your focus on on heaven above. And suffering down here on earth is a great way to do just that.
0: Coming up, what is the purpose and meaning of this
6: life? Did you take the civilizational moment we're in, obviously the West has as its central dynamic the jewish and christian faiths and yet the west has rejected the faiths that made it
0: Oz guinness
4: when the christian outlook returns in a moment hi it's mike gallagher i start every day by reading through the stories at daybreak insider it's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics over a quarter million people get daybreak insider by email daily and it's available to you at no cost Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back
0: to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Don Crow. As we watch the direction of our country and our culture today... It would be all too easy to be discouraged or disheartened. Indeed, there is much to be concerned about, but the veteran writer and scholar Oz Guinness is not shrinking back at all. Instead, he's making the case for Christ anew and afresh once again. Oz has a new book. The title, The Great Quest,
7: Invitation to an Examined Life and a Sure Path to Meaning. He was a guest of Eric Metaxas. The question of meaning has been important to you? Where should we start?
6: Well, Eric, this book is for individuals who are searching, who are seeking. But for me, the big picture of the Western world is the background. Because if you take the civilizational moment we're in, obviously, the West has as its central dynamic, the Jewish and Christian faiths. And yet the West has rejected the faiths that made it. So it's a cut flower civilization. And the question is, can the West be renewed? So people need to grapple with what it is that actually made the West. Now, the same thing in many ways is true for America. And we see this rising tide of religious nuns, people with receding faith. But obviously, many of them have no idea that the faith they've left was considered true. Now, if it was true... People should believe it even if there's no one but themselves left. If it was false, they should never have believed it, even if everyone else believed it, and so on. So there's an extraordinary cultural dimension to all this, but my purpose is individuals, individuals who are seeking.
7: So when you talk about the West, you're talking about Christendom. There's, of course, great irony and tragedy, in the idea that... uh, the West, uh, unlike any civilization since the beginning of the world, gave us all of the things that we praise, uh, the, the, the sanctity of the individual, the idea that racism is a bad thing. There are so many things that Christendom gave us in the context of the West and Europe. And maybe I can ask you, we can begin, what is it? Within uh, the West, within Western Christendom, that would lead uh, to people hating the very things uh, th- that gave them their values. It's, it's, it's. There's something bizarre about it. It's like a snake swallowing its own tail. It doesn't. It doesn't quite make sense. So, what is it that the seeds of our destruction are, are sort of? Uh, they're th- they're there in the in the best of Western Christendom. Well,
6: I think the first great rival to the Christian faith was the Enlightenment. And if you look at the aggressive secularism that's grown up since then, there are really three impulses. One, we don't want God. And you can see that particularly in the French Revolution and all the radical movements that have come out of that. In other words, throne and altar, church and state were united, both corrupt, both oppressive, and the revolution throughout both. We don't want God. The second impulse is we don't need God. Modern prosperity through technology and capitalism and so on, we've got so much to live with, why on earth do we bother to think of what we're living for? And then the third impulse is the more recent one, through DNA and stuff like that, we can replace God. You take Yuval Harari, Homo Deus. Now, put those together together. You 've got a powerful, aggressive secularism which is out to replace the Jewish and Christian faith as the dynamic of the West. Now they won't do it because without God, those things collapse in the long run, but they're trying to beyond well, them yeah. I mentioned that you've got various radical movements
7: No, please continue uh, w- w- when you say various radical movements w- to what are you referring? Well, when I say secularism,
6: it's not against the West, it's against the Christian faith, but trying to replace the Christian faith in the West. But if you look beyond that, I call them the color waves. You've got a red wave, a rainbow wave, a black wave, and a gold wave. And each of them in many ways is not only anti-Christian, but anti-Western. So the red wave is clearly classical Marxism and then cultural Marxism the rainbow wave, quite obviously, the LGBT sexual revolution, and the black wave, the term that is used of everything that grew up of a radical Islamism since the Iranian revolution in 1979, and then the gold wave, the way that so many of our elites are buying actually into ideas that come from the Chinese Communist Party in their attempts to do business with them, and so, on. so there are very radical movements around, all of them, against the Jewish and the Christian faith. Coming up, a biblical perspective on what it means to be human. Every single human being has dignity and worth because made in the very image and likeness of God.
0: More with Oz Guinness when the Christian Outlook continues in just a moment. Stay with
4: us. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu capitalism.
7: We believe in God the Father.
0: We believe in Jesus Christ. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. What is the meaning and purpose of our life? That is a timeless question people have asked for millennia. Whether consciously or subconsciously, people are searching for meaning. Philosophy seeks to provide an answer, the great religions seek to provide an answer. Christ, through the unfolding narrative of Scripture, offers an answer as well. Let's pick up with Oz Guinness and Eric Vitaxis talking about the great quest.
6: And, you know, philosophy is incredible. It's basically thinking about thinking. And good philosophy is good thinking about thinking. But philosophy after 3,000 years doesn't come up with the great answers. And the simple fact is you have to go to the great worldviews, the great philosophies of life, the great Religions. And when you do that, there are broadly three great families of faiths the Eastern, Hinduism, Buddhism, the New Age movements, secularism, atheism, agnosticism, materialism, and so on. And then, of course, the Abrahamic, supremely in the West, Judaism, and the Christian faith, with their notion of an infinite personal God. And depending which of the families of faiths you choose, you get decisively. Different answers. And one of my constant arguments is contrast is the mother of clarity. Say the biblical view. Every single human being has dignity and worth because made in the very image and likeness of God. The very highest view of dignity there is. Now, in other words, in the biblical view, we're defined upwards in relation to God, not downwards. You know, I lived in Oxford very close to Richard Dawkins and in a house very close to Desmond Morris, the author of The Naked Ape. But you take things like The Naked Ape or The Selfish Gene and the way if we define ourselves downwards as animals or machines or whatever, we frustrate ourselves. The only way to be really deeply fulfilled is to see that we're defined upwards in terms of our Creator, and we're made in His image. So the answers come out incredibly differently.
7: Uh, you've mentioned a couple of times that the, that the new book, The Great Quest, uh, is, is for individuals looking for the meaning of life, and at some point you say it's, uh, it's an adventure. At least you begin there. So what do you mean by that? Well, I'm not, it's not an argument that sets out proofs for the Christian faith
6: and I personally believe the theistic proofs and so on, don't work. And to the degree that some people think they work, they don't take you to the Lord God, whom we really know as the God of Abraham and the Father of Jesus Christ. Uh, Not setting out proofs, but describing the journey. And particularly for thinking people, the four phases of the journey. So a lot of people haven't even started. They haven't got to phase one, which is A time for questions. Phase two, a time for answers. Phase three, a time for evidences. And phase four, a time for commitments. But each of those has to be thought through in its own uh, pace and its own time so that people can move along. But there's no guarantee. In other words, I've set out the path, but each person has to follow it for themselves. So it's not a book you sit in an armchair come to the last page and you're convinced of an argument. No, it's a prospectus of setting out a journey. It may take five minutes. It may take five years or 50 years, but a journey which thinking people must take for themselves to think through the meaning of life.
7: I I have the idea that we're living in a, in a society that um, because of prosperity and technology, we can be endlessly distracted from thinking, about the very things that you say are central. Uh, In your experience, what would lead someone uh, to, to want to be a little bit deliberate about asking these questions? Seasons of life is
6: one thing. And then, as you said, there are crises. But then thirdly, you have what Alexander Solzhenitsyn called the crowbar of events. But my interest is mostly in the last one, which my mentor, you know him too, Peter Berger, calls signals of transcendence. People have experiences which puncture what they used to believe and point them to something which would have to be true if that experience is meaningful. And so to follow it, they set out as seekers, signals of transcendence. The most famous, of course, in the last century was C.S. Lewis, the atheist who was surprised by joy, but he couldn't explain joy as an atheist, not happiness, not pleasure, joy. And to find out what it was, he became a seeker, as you know, for more than 10 years.
7: Yeah, it's interesting uh, that that Lewis does r- write about that. I mean, but he was particularly thoughtful, you know, as, as people go. Um, but it, it is interesting that he did have – in in his life, what uh, you say Peter Berger calls signals of transcendence, that they sort of hints and clues that that began him on a journey. uh, And he was intellectually honest and willing to go on that journey. And that's the question, what is the meaning of life? Is there meaning to life? Many people uh, are not asking that question until something happens. And then suddenly they wonder, what's it all about? And is it possible that it's all about nothing? So I assume you, you deal with that question uh, as well.
6: Well, I also deal with the way you began this section and why people don't think. In other words, if Socrates is right, the unexamined life is not worth living. Many, many, you can almost say most people in America are leading lives not worth living. They haven't thought enough and cared enough to start thinking, and that's the tragedy. Well, if someone reaches stage one, a time for questions, life is called into question for them. That's what constitutes the seeker. Stage two, logically, a time for answers. And that's when they look for the big answers that I described earlier, the, the, the big families of faiths. And that stage is very comparative. If you choose this one or that one, would it answer my questions? Would it make a difference that I'm looking for? It's very comparative. And the quest is for something that's illuminating and adequate. But the third stage, all right, I'm attracted to an answer. It truly looks adequate and highly illuminating to my question. Stage three, a time for evidences. The big question, this one, as you know, is controversial today. Is it true? And despite all the nonsense of postmodernism, that's still a fundamental and absolutely necessary question. The question is, is it true?
0: Coming up, is my worldview grounded in truth?
6: So much of life assumes and requires truth. And for faith, it's incredibly important because it's the ultimate reason to believe.
0: When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. As we discuss today the great quest and meaning and purpose in life, we turn now to the most fundamental issue. Is it true? Is my worldview, or yours for that matter, grounded in truth? Once again, Oz Guinness with Eric Metaxas.
7: You were just touching on um, a time for evidence. In, in other words, people ask questions, they examine various options. So now the question is, uh, what do they find?
6: So much of life assumes and requires truth. And for faith, it's incredibly important because it's the ultimate reason to believe. We ultimately believe because we are convinced that it is true, as I said earlier. And if it's true, it'd be true if nobody believed it. If it's false, it would be false if everybody believed it, because it's true. Now, there are two main ways that people look into that. G.K. Chesterton is an example of one way, looking at it the big-picture way. And if you read Chesterton's description of his coming to faith in his book Orthodoxy, it's almost like Archimedes' Eureka. Suddenly, he sees how this huge spike fits into a huge hole in the universe, and all the nuts and bolts fit into place. And they click, 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 and his prose gets incredibly animated and exciting. It's a big picture coming together, and many people are like that. The alternative is C.S. Lewis. Again, as you know, when one of his friends, a hard-boiled atheist, challenged him to read the Gospels. He read them, and he never discussed them and read them as a literary critic that he was. And when he did that close-up examination, of course, Jesus was an incredible teacher ethically, but he also said theological things which were obscene if they weren't true. Was Jesus a liar? Was he a lunatic? And Lewis looks at the evidence of all this. And he's convinced it is, in fact, that Jesus was who he said he was. And it was the close-knit, close-up evidence that convinced him and made him, as he said, the most reluctant convert in England. He didn't want it to be true. He wanted his independence. But he was convinced by the truth. He was the hardest-boiled atheist at Magdalen. And they were discussing all sorts of things. And he said, Jack, have you ever looked to the Gospels? And Lewis said, no, but he was rather shaken because it was a hard-bitten atheist who told him to do that. And he as a professional literary critic, literary historian,
0: hadn't looked at the Gospels the way he looked at other literature. That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, go to ChristianOutlook.com and take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play and never miss these and other great conversations. Thanks for joining us. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Schubin and producers David Pushan and Michael Cook, I'm Don Crow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook.